Time to turn on the computer. and this is Listen On Air. Spencer Finch is an artist who attempts to capture the inexplicable, the ephemeral and the everyday within his work through his use of light, colour and line and he is best known for his installations that visualise his experience of natural phenomena. Underpinning his work is an innate interest in poetry and language. Spencer looks to the structure of poetry as a way of organising his own work. If a poem's construction simultaneously deals with form and content, how can this methodology be thought through in artwork? In the past, Spencer has made work that refers to the writings of W.H. Auden, Henry David Thoreau and Sigmund Freud. He has also made numerous works in reference to Emily Dickinson and in this episode he speaks about why he finds her so compelling and why he returns to her as a subject matter compulsively. Dickinson, who was born in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1830 and who died in 1886, is frequently described as one of America's greatest poets, and many of her poems deal with themes of illness, death and immortality. She was attempting to make the abstract palpable, and she experimented with expression in order to challenge the existing definitions of poetry at the time. Dickinson was a prolific writer, but only a handful of her poems were published out of the nearly 1800 that she wrote in her lifetime. Her poems typically lack titles, are littered with dashes and employ unconventional punctuation, use of capitals and contain short lines. Spencer has made work since about 2003 that has referenced Emily Dickinson and cited her poetry. And in this episode, he speaks particularly about a sculpture titled 366 in brackets Emily Dickinson's Miraculous Year, a work made in 2009. This work is based on the year 1862, when Dickinson wrote 366 poems in 365 days. The sculpture comprises 366 individual candles arranged in a linear sequence, each of which burns for 24 hours. The colour of each candle relates to a colour mentioned in the corresponding poem. If no colour is mentioned in the poem, the candle that burns is made out of natural paraffin. So I came to... Emily Dickinson, a little late. I was interested in other poetry first and other poets. And especially in the 90s, I was obsessed with W.H. Auden and carried a collection of his poetry around with me everywhere for, I think, the better part of the decade. And then as that book got totally tattered, I thought, oh, maybe I should start looking for someone else for my next decade. And so in the early 2000s, I started reading Emily Dickinson. I mean, I guess I had read some earlier, but not so much. And I found ideas in her work that resonated with me. And I probably like a lot of artists or writers, I always read for a purpose and a sort of in a mercenary way, I guess, in trying to find uh, ideas or images or moments that are uh, things that I can steal and use in my own work. And I, I was able to do that with Auden. There was uh, his poem about Freud I used as a sort of launching pad for some work about Freud. His poem called The Shield of Achilles I used for work about Troy. It was a way, really, of thinking about being inspired, a way of being inspired, I guess, without it being visual art. 
and a, a way of connecting to the world through some content and finding a balance between form and content that is common in poetry and a little less common in visual arts. She looked over his shoulder for vines and olive trees, marble well-governed cities and ships upon untamed seas. But there on the shining metal his hands had put instead an artificial wilderness and a sky like lead. A plain without a feature, bare and brown, no blade of grass, no sign of neighbourhood, nothing to eat and nowhere to sit down. Yet congregated on its blankness stood an unintelligible multitude, a million eyes, a million boots in line, without expression, waiting for a sign. The structure of poetry as a way of organizing my own work and trying to thinking trying to think about it in in the same structural way where is where there is this necessary relationship between form and content and because art is visual and poetry is oral it's uh, it's a different kind of connection but but that relationship between the ideas um, and in poetry it's between what the word sounds like and and what it means there's a correlation between in in visual art between what something looks like and, and on a, in a formal level and what it means on a content level so i found that possibility also in emily dickinson who's a much in some ways a more difficult poet than auden because she's so peculiar i guess and her use of language is very idiosyncratic her observations are uh, idiosyncratic her 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 imagery is is uh, very particular and it's it's also very unique to new england it's it's clearly influenced by particular sources the bible shakespeare puritanism in general uh, and the new england landscape and being from new england myself i think i I found a, a connection to that way of making these observations about this very, well, limited landscape, I guess, that then could be expanded into some sort of universal idea and, and observation and something that could be much broader than the uh, immediate, more prosaic observation. So I decided that I wanted to do something at Emily Dickinson's house, I had been thinking about this idea of a passing cloud, about making a picture of the experience or, or an installation about the experience of a passing cloud and what it feels like uh, on a summer afternoon when a cloud passes in front of the sun, how the, that shift in light quality, both in terms of intensity and in color, has some very sort of evocative uh, effect on, on me at least and I think on other people and also it's something that's that's almost nothing and I'm, I've always been interested in artwork that is very very small or at least as de Kooning said you know the content is very very tiny um, and so I started thinking about the idea of recreating the experience of a passing cloud somewhere I'm not interested really in autobiographical work, so I, I didn't really want to do it like in my bedroom or in my, you know, out on my, out on in my front porch or 
in my life. I wanted there to be this other aspect of the work that connected to something else and made the work more complex and resonant. And so I thought, who would really, who would observe something like this and be able to make it a profound moment? And so I immediately thought Emily Dickinson is someone who would, who, who would notice this and make it somehow make it beautiful. And so I originally thought about doing it with computer dimmers. So create the light using fluorescent lamps that would be filtered to the precise color of the sun and then the, the shadow. And then I started working with filters, with crumpling filters. And my friend, the choreographer, William Forsythe, came to the studio and he's like a super creative person and also has worked a lot with lighting and filters. And I was explaining how I was stumped with this. And he, I think, was the first to sort of crumple a filter. And the filters are quite expensive and it's not something I would normally do. I would not, I would normally crumple filters uh, because it seems like, a, like throwing away money, but he like crumpled this filter and I said, oh, okay, he's the, uh, He's the genius here. I'll let him do what he, he, he wants to do. And he crumpled the filter. And then there was a clothespin hanging from, the, uh, from a piece of fishing line in the studio. And he attached that crumpled filter to, that, to the clothespin. And immediately we both knew that that was the, the solution. So rather than some complex, um, some complex uh, computer-driven dimming uh, arrangement, the plan... Uh, became to just create a big crumpled cloud of filters which would hang between the illumination, the uh, bank of fluorescent lights, and the viewer. So the effect of a passing cloud was created by the viewer moving around this massive cloud. And it, um, it ended up being a really great solution because it created a much more interesting object, something that actually looked a bit like a cloud. It's also really fun to make. I, I used the clothespins, which had this sort of domestic reference and sort of referenced Emily Dickinson in some way. And it was uh, just really fun to do. Whereas working with a computer programmer and trying to figure that out and doing it in a very um, digital way, I guess, would not be fun for me. So it, it was, uh, it, it really worked out well. And then I went to uh, Emily Dickinson's house and just hung out in the yard and measured the light as it was changing on a summer afternoon. And then I had light measurements of the light in the yard in, with the passing cloud. And, and for me, it was a, a very moving experience just to be there and, uh, and experience a light change that Emily Dickinson would have, would have experienced herself. There's a certain slant of light on winter afternoons that oppresses, like the weight of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. And then I became a groupie. So after that first visit, which I think was 2003, I became, I really became kind of obsessed. And start, And finally, uh, I was sending emails and calling the Emily Dickinson house and didn't get any response because the first time I worked outside, I didn't have to be in the house. And there are a lot of 
crazy people like me who are obsessed with Emily Dickinson. So they get lots of calls and, you know, they have to ignore them because it's like, you know, nuts show up at the door all the time. And I was just another one of those nuts. But I knew the director at um, at Mass Mocha, Joe Thompson, knew the director of the Emily Dickinson Museum and managed to uh, get me in. And so then once I got in, it was a really sort of wonderful uh, experience and they've been very supportive and I even did a little show there uh, once of works that were related to her and I've done some workshops in the Amherst High School and so I, I feel a sort of connection uh, to that world and um, but she continues to give all kinds of inspiration to me and I find her poetry as a source of ideas for lots of different work and also for um, titles. Almost all of my titles in the last five years have been uh, ripped off from Emily Dickinson poems. It's like an endless source. So, I mean, sometimes it's harder. I spend like an entire day going through the poems looking for, for a title, but I can almost always find one. And often, you know, they're, they're 1,800 poems, and I, I, at some point or another I've read them all, but, you know, it's easy to forget them. And or they just don't register, and you, I go back and find new things and new poems that that I, I really that I really like. A, a more a more recent work, uh, really, just I, which I started last year. So um, last summer, I injured my back um, doing something stupid, and so I was sort of laid up for a couple of weeks. And I decided I should do something productive with my time because I couldn't really be in the studio much. And so I decided I was going to reread or read for the first time all of Emily Dickinson's poems. So I, I, I did that and just sort of turned my way through, which was a pleasure. And I was really, as usual, reading for a purpose and trying to find things that I could use for my own work and, and uh, for an exhibition. One poem that I wasn't familiar with which I really uh, loved, is called She Sweeps with Many Colored Brooms. And it's a description that Dickinson makes about a sunset. And I think it's, um, it's sort of a classic example of her imaginative skills, like how she's able to take something as you know, beautiful but also as cliched as a sunset and find a new way of looking at it. And, you know... I think probably every artist wants to make a picture of a sunset. I mean, it's something I've, I've wanted to do and, and have done, but I'm not interested in doing it in a conventional way because if you portray a sunset in, in a conventional way, it is a cliche. It, it doesn't tell us anything we don't already know about a sunset. And so I think what Emily Dickinson does in her poems about sunsets is uh, she makes us look at the sunset differently and think about it differently and appreciate it more in a, in a, in a richer and, and more complex way. This is the land the sunset washes. These are the banks of the yellow sea. Where it rose or whither it rushes, these are the western mystery. The title of the works that came from this poem um, actually comes from a different poem, and that is uh, Western Mystery, which is uh, how she describes the, the, the sunset in, in another poem. The idea of this mystery occurring every, every evening in the West, um, which I, I think is such an apt 
and um, and well, poetic description of of the sunset. But I'm just going to read uh, the she sweeps with many colored brooms, and then I'll speak about the work that came from that a little bit. She sweeps with many colored brooms and leaves the shreds behind. O housewife in the evening west, come back and dust the pond. You dropped a purple raveling in, you dropped an amber thread, and now you've littered all the east with duds of emerald. And still she plies her spotted thrift, and still the scene prevails, till dust obstructs the diligence or contemplation fails. So I loved this idea of thinking about the sunset not as not as blocks of color or washes of color, but of like threads and pieces of, of fabric and color and, and things that would be like swept off the floor and how all of these colors sort of come together to make the sunset. And then of course, as dusk, uh, as dusk arrives, that, that, that sweeping is over and the, and the color disappears. So I thought, oh, it would be so interesting to make a, well, <laughs> interesting for me to make drawings pictures of sunsets using threads i mean so so this is sort of an example of how i took an idea of something that she mentioned and try to make it my own and so i i have kind of a long interest in using materials that are either non-art materials or slightly unconventional materials or slightly crude materials to represent things that could more easily be represented using traditional media such as paint. And I thought using yarn threads would be an interesting way to sort of mix color, make something that looks weird and abstract, but once you know that it's about a sunset, you see the sunset in the picture. And it also kind of returns the sunset to the imagination of the viewer. So you have to sort of make that leap. And I'm trying to remember this line. It's like, it's half a representation. Um, that, uh, like Emily Dickinson, there's actually a good quote from her where she says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Um, so you sort of, it's like making a picture of the sunset, but it's got some interpolation and some inflection and it becomes slanted and that's i think what uh what saves it in some way from being just another picture of the of the of the sunset and it's also becomes i mean to do these yarn drawings is a very kind of complicated process that um, involves preparing the paper getting all the yarn doing a test version dry and then just it's very abexy just getting the yarn out there and then compressing it so that it sticks to the ground and then that's it and either it works or it doesn't work so i like that way of working that is um unforgiving i guess and requires uh this sort of planning ahead this concentrated period of about it's about 14 minutes of getting the yarn on getting it right getting it attached and and then that's that's it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Rather than having something that you can, you know, erase or or fuss with or change or paint over. So that, 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 the process seemed, I mean, the process in a way takes about the time that a um, that a sunset takes. You know, it's like by the time it's done, it's it's disappeared. So that 
in, in some ways, I guess, the process mimics that, that like sort of moment, which comes, I guess, out of the tradition of plein air painting, where you're looking at the sunset or looking at something painting very quickly, and then the light changes. So that, that sort of tradition from Monet, really, about serial painting and, and painting something that's changing in order to indicate those changes is something that has interested me. And I think that that's connected in this work as well. Maybe I could also speak about the uh, 366, the candle piece. So um, one work that I did, which is from 2009, was sort of a, this is probably my most direct homage to to Emily Dickinson and really her creativity. I mean, I guess that's really what I admire most about her is this incredible creative uh, range and depth that she that she had and um i just find it so admirable and that was sort of the subject matter of this work uh called 366 emily dickinson's miraculous year it was the year 1862 it was during the civil war and she wrote 366 amazing world-class poems in 365 days and so I decided to do, I mean, it's a weird piece, and that's like a memorial piece. So I decided to do a piece that actually lasts an entire year and is a uh, group, a series of 366 candles, which I designed each to burn for 24 hours. And so there's a, a sort of formula that you can figure out based on temperature and humidity about the wick size and the candle size so that you can design it more or less so that it burns uh, for 24 hours. And each candle, we handmade it in the studio, and they were colored. There are some of the original tests up there that have faded a bit. They, the candle wax is susceptible to daylight. But um, so there, uh, all of these different colors. Each candle was I mixed the color individually, based on a color or, or an object that has a color that's mentioned in the poem. So some poems, there was nothing, and those, can, those candles are just uh, plain paraffin. They're just, they're just white. But most of the poems have colors in them, and so I matched those colors, and then they were put in the order of the poems and installed in a gallery in a spiral, and then each one burned for a day. And the candle, uh, the candles melt on the floor. They're, they go from being these very sort of rigid cylinders to being this this sort of beautiful pools of color and 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 wax, and much more sort of impressionistic where the colors mix. The grass so little has to do, a sphere of simple green, with only butterflies to brood and bees to entertain, and stir all day to pretty tunes the breezes fetch along, and hold the sunshine in its lap, and bow to everything. Technical problems with that work, of course, are that it requires a year, so in order for the piece to be properly exhibited, uh, I need a space uh, where it can be exhibited for a year, and also a space where it... um, where there can be an open flame. So the first time it was exhibited at a gallery in New York just for a month, we pre-burned a lot of the candles so that they were already melted on the floor. And then the last group, we just burned, you know, one a day. 
And um, so I still I have two sets that are in boxes that I'm waiting and someday I'll show in a space when I have the opportunity to do it for a full year. And that was just my way of appreciating Emily Dickinson. I mean, and just, you know, just to sort of take these poems that are about the natural world uh, in a lot of ways and then transforming them into uh, the color of the candle and then through time the entire work gets transformed into something that's much more sort of sculptural and painterly on the floor. And then that's it. You know, after that year, then it's gone. You, you like sweep it up off the floor and throw it out. It's not something that can be preserved. So it's a really sort of transient piece and um, really exists for that uh, time. And so the time that it takes for the work to be completed is the same time in which Emily created, I mean, 366 poems. I mean, you know, no one knew she was writing these poems. I mean, people knew that she was writing poems, but they didn't know she was writing this many poems. They didn't know that they were this amazing. She just had this incredible drive and and confidence, you know, as a woman in 19th century uh, America. In a, in a, I mean, Amherst, it was very Puritan, but um, she, she had more opportunities than women in other parts of the country or world had, but they were limited. I mean, she had, she had access to books. I mean, she had, there was this very weird arrangement she had with her father where he only wanted her to read certain books officially, but then would order books for her and like leave them for her, but never actually gave them to her. So it was, it was very peculiar, but so she had access to books in this very <laughs> bizarre, repressed New England way. But she had, you know, she she baked and she gardened and she did domestic chores. That that was that that was her life. And at the same time, she was writing these amazing poems. Apparently, they think that she wrote at night. That she she wrote late in the evening when she was alone and um, and was able to, uh, I guess, focus and concentrate and and have her own world. And um, one of the recent works that I did which is based on the um, based on her bedroom actually is um, a work that's called the inner from the outer which is a series of seven photographs that I made looking out uh, her bedroom window at the landscape outside and actually you can see a little bit of her brother Austin's house in the background um, so the photographs I made in uh, at dusk and the over the course of I think it was about an hour um, the window changes from transparent to reflective and goes from being a window to a mirror and it's a trope I've used before it's a, a, a sort of I don't know I mean I guess it's even though I started doing these these kinds of works before my Dickinson obsession it seems very much like her in a way and so I really want to do one set with her looking out her window. And um, I might as well read the poem, The Inner from the Outer, or The Outer from the Inner, (laughs) um, as a way of uh, introducing this work. The outer from the inner derives its magnitude, tis duke or dwarf according as is the central mood, the fine unvarying axis that regulates a wheel, those spokes spin more conspicuous and fling a dust the while. The inner paints the outer, the brush without the hand. Its picture publishes precise, as is the inner brand. O fine arterial canvas, 
a cheek perchance a brow, the star's whole secret in the lake, eyes were not meant to know. Her language is so opaque sometimes, it's really, you know, you really don't know what she's talking about. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I have actually um, been moved to look at, at analysis of her poem, which I would never do with another poet. But uh, Helen Vendler um, has written a lot about Emily Dickinson and has a sort of, you know, useful interpretation, analysis, and just sort of general help in trying to understand some of the poems. I mean, at the same time, I find by reading the poems repeatedly, especially over a long period of time, something comes out of them on repeated uh, readings that you don't get in, in a single reading. And sometimes I'll read a poem a couple of years later and understand it in a way I didn't before. But I mean, even this poem, which I know, I mean, not well, but I mean, what does it mean? It derives its magnitude to duke or dwarf according as is the central mood and the outer from the inner. But, but then she says things, the inner paints the outer, the brush without the hand, um, you know, this sort of automatic painting or something. And, but it is about this complex relationship between inner and outer in, in humans. And for me, there's a sort of connection between the inner and the outer of the, the outer landscape and the inner being her sort of chamber where she was uh, working and writing and creating her art. And it's something, I mean, it's funny, um, Auden has a poem called The Cave of Making, which is how he described his um, writing studio in Austria at, at the end of his life. And he talks about his place of working as, as a cave of making where he can sort of focus on, on his work. And that inner and outer is something that comes up in, in Dickinson as well. For this and for all enclosures like it, the archetype is Valen's Tilly. An enter more private than a bedroom even, for neither lovers nor maids are welcome, but without a bedroom secret. From the Olivetti portable, the dictionaries, the very best money can buy, the heaps of paper, it is evident what must go on. I mean, one of my favorite poems, uh, which I will read, is which I used actually for the title of a, of a book of a monograph that came out a couple of years ago, is The Brain is Wider Than the Sky. And this, this poem really, I think, kind of explains to a certain degree Dickinson's relationship or understanding between the human and imagination and the divine, meaning the universe, the world, everything, everything out there, and how we see the divine in the, in the human, and how imagination and the brain, and, and that doesn't just mean artistic imagination, but like the imagination and the, and the, and the human brain power that is, that is used for science or like mathematics or um, all kinds of, uh, you know, human activity. But I mean, if you think about something like the sort of humanity of, say, Einstein's brain, to be able to think in an abstract way that deeply, it's uh, something that Dickinson describes in this poem, and also as a way of describing her own creative 
abilities, which are gargantuan. The brain is wider than the sky, for put them side by side. The one the other will contain with ease and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue. The one the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound. And they will defer, if they do, as syllable from sound. I mean, it's almost blasphemy to say the brain is just the weight of God. I mean, it's basically comparing uh, humans to to God. And um, But that idea of the brain being wider than the sky and this sort of incredible imagination is something that Dickinson exemplifies and also, I think, a way that she may have thought about her own work because it, her experience was very limited. I mean, she didn't, I mean, she, when she was younger, she traveled a little bit. She went to Washington once, she went to Boston a couple of times, but she really, for most of her life was an Amherst and in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years was really just in her own house and, and yard. And so um, the idea that it's really not experience, but imagination that is the prime mover or source of creativity and great art, I think is something that is is readily apparent in, in, in her work and is somehow an inspiration for me in, in working and just thinking about looking around the studio and being able to make work that is just about my surroundings and that it doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have to be looking at the Alps. I can be, you know, looking out my window in Gowanus and it's about really my imagination or my relationship to that landscape and my understanding and, and my inflection of it rather than the, how grand the actual observation is. You know, I mean, a, a, a flower and a bee is all Emily Dickinson needs to make a great poem. You know, she doesn't need, um, you know, Odysseus. <laughs> she, she can make with very limited means, she makes, uh, you know, enormous um, poetic impact. And that's something that strikes a chord with me and it's a way of working that I really like. I think it's also something that I probably, um, well, something I always admired about Bruce Nauman and I think I sort of uh, took from him in that a lot of his work is just about you know, being in the studio. Well, what what do you do when there's nothing to do? And that idea of being bored and having time and just sort of observing what's around you and taking that nothing and making something of it. And for me as an artist, there's nothing more gratifying and wonderful than starting the day with nothing in the studio and just being in the studio and maybe not even have an idea and then at the end of the day have an artwork. And, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but when that happens, that's the best day. And I imagine that as being a kind of Emily Dickinson day. A bird came down the walk he did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. And then he drank a dew from a convenient grass and then hopped sideways to a wall to let a beetle pass. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought.
He stirred his velvet head like one in danger. Cautious, I offered him a crumb, and he unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home. Then oars divide the ocean to silver for a seam, or butterflies off banks of noon leap splashless as they swim. I really, I've started working with my garden in uh, upstate a little bit, thinking about that as a source for artwork, a source for like making artwork. And that comes really from two sources. One is Monet and his garden at Giverny, which when I visited, I realized it's not really a garden. It's like a studio. It's like a laboratory for making art. You know, he, he designed that garden in a way to create really optically and pictorially a opportunity to make great paintings and complex and interesting paintings. And I mean, my, my garden is uh, much less grand than Monet's and I'm organizing it in more of a conceptual way to, to be able to observe it and try to use it as a, um, as a way of motivating artwork. But I also think about it in terms of Emily Dickinson and spending time there and using that as a uh, as a source, as just being in nature and sort of observing and observing really small things and hoping that that sparks an idea for something for something bigger. So there's certain uh, planting that I'm doing, certain arranging that I'm doing and just certain ways of interacting with the environment that are that are Emily Dickinson inspired. So, so we'll see what happens. And then I, I just always go back to it. You know, I, I mean, if I, if I have time and, you know, just read 10 poems, I mean, often there's something that sort of triggers and it, and it makes it, um, it makes it a way to find ideas. I mean, they don't always pan out, but I think, you know, I, I think one of the greatest fears that artists have is that everything's just going to dry up, you know? And it, of course, creativity goes in cycles. And I mean, even Emily Dickinson really slowed down her, her productivity. I mean, by the end of her life, she was, you know, just writing a handful of poems each year. But at the same time, if you have things you can go to, uh, whether it's poems or artwork that inspire you, that that for me is sort of a a, a resource that I want to take advantage of to to sort of fend off that uh, the drying up of creativity. So I think uh, Dickinson will continue to sort of inspire me that way for a long time. I've been reading James Schuyler again, the New York School poet, who I think is really is really a wonderful poet, very different kind of poet, and um, he uh, he is. I mean, I don't know if that's as useful in my work, um, but it is sort of useful in life somehow and, and also something that his way of sort of experiencing the world and and it's sort of, you know, advice for life, which poetry does for me. I mean, Emily Dickinson is also, I mean, I didn't mention this, but I mean, just as a human being, I... Um, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but she is like a role model for me. Like she wasn't afraid of death. I mean, she wasn't, she just sort of accepted it. And, you know, it probably has to do with that time when death is all around you in the 19th century, you just sort of accepted it. But, and I think now it's a little harder for us, but I, I was just, 
I was just flying back um, from North Carolina last week, and it was a very turbulent flight. And, you know, I mean, turbulence does not take airplanes down, but I, I still am a nervous flyer. And so I, I thought, well, what would Emily Dickinson do on this flight? How would, how would she handle this? And she would not be worried about it. I mean, she wouldn't bother her. So I, I try to think, you know, what would she, she do? Also, I mean, she says really great things like, you know, about life. You know, as life goes by, you know, she says that that it never comes again is what makes life so sweet. And, you know, there is a there's a sort of beautiful truth to that. You know, that it you know, we have this one shot. And and so I think in terms of just sort of dealing with my own mortality, she's been a great sort of therapist for me. So it, it's 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 helpful, you know, not only in an artistic sense, but on a, in a more more personal way but it is it is sort of funny that i i do you know it's like what would emily dickinson do i should have one of those bracelets if i can stop one heart from breaking i shall not live in vain if i can ease one life the aching or cool one pain or help one fainting robin unto his nest again i shall not live in vain Start the computer and return online. online. 